Welcome to the Future of Coding. This episode is one from The Vault. It was recorded, I think, about two years ago. It's an interview between our former host, Steve Krauss, and Amjad Massad, who is the founder of Replit, the online REPL that lets you spin up an environment in one of many, many, many different programming languages and build a piece of software that you can run in the cloud that does one of any number of things. They are very, very popular among grade school-aged children who use it as an environment to learn how to program and make games. But it's also very popular for people doing all sorts of other projects as well. And in this episode, Steve and Amjad go into the backstory behind Replit and some of the um, guiding principles Amjad holds dear. And it's a really wide-ranging and interesting interview, and I think you'll enjoy it. As is my normal <laughs> uh, way of being, uh, since I'm kind of an audio nerd, uh, this episode was recorded in person. So the sound quality on this one is just a bit different from the other episodes because it's not two people talking into microphones that are, you know, on stands in front of a computer. It's two people kind of in a room talking to each other. So it has a, a much more friendly vibe and energy, but there's also a little bit of echo to the sound. So um, that's something I've done my best to clean up. And I think it's a totally listenable interview all the same. It just would be remiss of me to not mention that little tidbit. I know that uh, some people get a little bit nervous when encountering a circumstance like this where the uh, frequent sponsor of a podcast or whatever media outlet you're looking at is involved in the content. And I just want to say that this interview uh, was not something, to the best of my knowledge, that Replit paid for directly. And I don't think that their role as a sponsor of the show precludes us from interviewing them, but I think it's worth me just reaffirming that they don't pay for positive editorial coverage or anything like that. This was just something that Steve put together because Replit are an interesting company, which is also why I am happy to have them continue sponsoring the show. I think that the thing that they are building is a good fit for a vision of the future of programming in that it is a delta over what we are doing now in a positive direction. And the fact that they have actually built it into a business that is up and running and out there in the world and frequently doing new interesting projects to try and further the the goals that we share, I think is uh, commendable. And so the fact that they're a sponsor, I'm I'm happy to continue with that. I would not want sponsors on this show to be, you know, mattress companies or toothbrush companies or that kind of thing. You will not hear sponsors on this show unless they are doing work that I think is relevant to this audience. And so that's why Replit continued to be a sponsor and their sponsorship uh, and the content of this episode should not be seen as influencing one another. So that said, I'm going to just turn it over to the interview now, and I will uh, catch back up with you later in the show. Welcome, Andre. Hey, thanks. Uh, thanks for coming. I'm, I'm excited to be finally on, on the podcast. Yeah, me too. It's uh, great to be able to do this in person. Yeah, it's awesome uh, to have you here in our office. It's great. Yeah. Uh, cool. So I, I um, thought it would be a good idea to start with uh, your own personal story before talking about Replit. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I, in reading through your writing, I know Paul Graham was an early influence. Mm -hmm. I'd be curious to hear more about, like, yeah, uh, 
what got you into programming and particularly into making programming better? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess it the first interaction I had with computers uh, is in some sense also the same interaction I had with programming. I remember vividly, it's actually one of my earliest memories. I was five, maybe six years old. And I remember it was late at night. And I remember that we had this, I, I grew up uh, in Jordan, in Amman, Jordan. And so we had, we had this small home. It was me and my older brother in a room. And there was another room next to our room that was like sort of like a general purpose room. We had a lot of toys in it, and, and we'd play in it. And my father had a lot of different things there. And one day he brings brings a computer there, and his friend was with him uh, as they're kind of putting the computer together and installing it. And I remember looking over the shoulder and being like very, very intrigued by what was happening. Like, what is this foreign machine doing there? It's the first time that I'm seeing a computer. Of course, to put this in context, there's no internet. Um, I don't think there's anything about computers in the t- uh, TV. Like the only TV that we had, you know, was was a few channels, so we weren't really exposed to the rest of the world and what was happening in the U.S. So it was it was very exciting. And then I would sort of like spy on my father as he's using the computer, and I would look behind his back and see him like type these DOS commands. I remember it was something. I think I think it was an IBM, and I think. Um, I think it was uh, yeah, it was it was Microsoft DOS, and it, it was 1993, and he was typing these commands in. And I remember that after he'd go to bed, I'd turn on the computer and retype the commands without him knowing. He- without him knowing, like I didn't, I didn't know if it was sort of kosher or, or not, or I'm messing with a like a really expensive machine. So I just I just did, did it on my own, and just like typing these CD and. You know, making directories and DIR or whatever, and uh, I sort of it almost spoke to me, right? It all, I, all, I I instinctively understand it. It's it's almost a mystical feeling now that I'm thinking about it. But I just sort of like got what was going on, and uh, pretty quickly I was able to like boot up games and do different different things like that, and. Um, and then I got really interested in the hardware and like what's what's in the box, and uh, I I took the box apart and and I was able to like take the entire PC apart and put it back together. And so one day my father caught me taking it apart, and it was it became this hobby where like I take all the components apart and then I try to put them back together, and he was so mad. But I was like, no, no, wait, wait, I can put <laughs> it back. And so I put it back, and then he was impressed. By mm. by that, and I think that that sort of external validation that you get as a first time programmer, first time sort of doing anything with computers, uh, it became it becomes this uh, this really good feeling that you keep chasing, right? Mm. Um, and uh, and I just became the computer person in my family, and then my extended family, and my neighborhood, and. I just became the guy that would fix computers, would do different things with computers. But it actually took a took a long time for me to start coding. From that experience until my first program was about at least two to three years before we had logo in school. 
And so we, um, I actually like remember sort of peeking on logo pretty quickly. Like it was really interesting and impressive at first, but but I just like could do anything I wanted with a turtle and wanted like more more things. Um, and that there was another two years period before. And this is this was really accidental, uh, really happenstance. We we used to go to this computer show that happened yearly with my father, and we'd go there and we'd look around, see what people are up to, what what you know what what um, you know the latest advancement in computers. And at the time, I think maybe it was nineteen ninety five or nineteen ninety six, uh, maybe a little bit later. Uh, CDs, nineteen ninety eight, maybe CDs were becoming a thing, and. I we got we went to the computer show and we bought a CD drive so we can install it on the on the way home. And there was this like a group a box with like random CDs in it, like random utility CDs. Like I bought it because I don't know, you know, when you have a new thing, you just like want to try anything on it. So I bought this like box of CDs. And in it there was like a fax program. <laughs> <laughs> that I, you, it's such a different world back then. Like we were just like, because you're locked into your machine. There's no internet. It's like everything is fascinating. You can have you try a fax machine software, and you like, you just like play around with it. And then one of the CDs, a lot of the other things were not that interesting, but one of the CDs was a visual, semi-visual programming environment. And I have actually tried to look. For it ever since, I I don't know what what its name, but mm. it was it was really great. Like you could, it was kind of like like blocks, like uh, the stuff you did with Woof, um, similar to that. And I was able to string together a program to teach my younger brother, who you just met earlier yeah, upstairs <laughs> upstairs, to teach him math. So the way I taught him was um, we would have an equation, say like. You know, uh, blank plus five equals fifteen, and he has to put in ten. And if he puts in ten, then uh, then I had a clap sound that would clap for him, and that he got it right. He got really addicted to this game. He really loved it, and he he learned multiplication, addition, and everything really early before he even got to school because he was just like playing the games that I was building, mm. and and. It took another maybe a year or two before I actually, for the first time, actually sat down into a real programming environment. And uh, you know, it, it's almost like a tragedy that I, that I didn't have like a real programming environment early on because I was dying to. And then finally, what I did is like I pirated VB4, um, and uh, and that was like my first uh, sort of real programming environment. And I, maybe I was at the time. Uh, thirteen or fourteen. Mm. Cool, that's a, a that's a great story, and I, I think there's a lot of similarities that I, like I felt like in my own story, and I imagine other other programmers like being the tech person, yeah, and like having that virtuous feedback loop of getting a, a, a like praise and approval, and then more people come to you with their problems, and and I almost feel like it's a vicious cycle for everyone else in your family. Like n- they n- none of them had to figure out how to be. Uh, proficient with computers because all that all that information you became the repository for all that. That's a good point. I never thought about it this way, but they, but they become dependent on you. Yeah, interesting. Uh, and also, like, it's really hard for you to escape it. Yeah, like, and you I, don't want to. That's part of it. Well, well maybe at some point, at you some do. point it, be, it became cumbersome. At some point, 
like I am, let's say, 16 or 17. I have other things going on. And some lady that's my mother's friend somewhere, somewhere like, a, you know, a, a few miles away or something like that. And she wants she wants my help with my computer. And I kind of felt obliged to help everyone. And uh, and at some point I had to sort of I had to start saying no. Mm. <laughs> I guess it was a good lesson in life where like you had, you had, you had, you had to say no. <laughs> yeah, I see it as like my way to contribute to my extended family. Like we have a, a doctor, we have a lawyer, and like whenever you have problems, like everyone just calls them, and I'm like, I'm the I'm the tech one, right? You know? So right, and I, I definitely still still do that sometimes, but. You gotta you gotta draw draw the lines sometimes. Like, of course. actually, it happened to me the other day. Um, maybe I'm still like, I still like look too much like a nerd. But uh, in, in an airplane, a woman could not connect to the Wi-Fi, and she she picked me out of like uh, like she was walking, and she picked me out of like all the different people. Were you wearing this shirt? <laughs> yes, I wear it a lot, so maybe that's why. And she was like, "Oh, can you help me with the Wi-Fi?" <laughs> She could tell from the mono space font, right? I, yeah, it's sure. like this is this is, he knows this stuff, <laughs> <laughs> or maybe it was a hoodie. Yeah, hoodie. yeah. I'm I'm kind of a prototypical San Francisco sort of hacker. So, <laughs> yeah, nice. Um, so w- uh, when did so you were a programmer quite early? Uh, Logo, same as I. You started in Logo and then um, Visual Basic. At what point did you f- fall into like Paul Graham and other like I know you like. All the people that we like, Doug Engelbard and Alan Kay and Brett Victor. Where did you find all of these people? I think still pretty late because uh, we didn't have internet. Um, <laughs> that would do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Until like, so when I started building, so the first application that I started building was um, a internet cafe slash land gaming center, um, uh, sort of management system. So I built this client server application. Where you go into the store, you give them like two Jordanian dinars, and you say, "I'm gonna play Counter Strike for an hour." They create a username for you and a password, and they put like an hour into your account. You go to you go to the computer, you log in, and you can only play Counter Strike. Had like very good security system so that you can't do any any anything else. And then when your hour is out, I boot you from the game and I I reboot the computer. And I started selling the software, but in the in the process of making it, I, I made it without having an internet connection. And I would, I would basically, when I get stuck, I would have to like get up and walk to the internet cafe, and sit down and like uh, do some Yahoo searches, <laughs> and sometimes I download a bunch of Visual Basic code sample code that, that might be doing the same thing that I'd want to do, put it on a CD, burn it on a CD, and then go back home and try again. My God. Yeah. And so it took me to, it took me two years to build that system. And that kind of like teaches you I think patience and teaches you you know the the virtue of hard work. So I don't look at that experience as merely negative. I uh, or like, you know, anything like that. I think I think it was a great experience, but it also was a lonely experience because you, because I was so much into my work, um, 
and I wasn't online. I wasn't able to talk to other programmers. I wasn't able to ask a lot of questions. I would have limited amount of money and time when I log into the internet. It cost money every time you needed yeah, to log in. Yeah, it cost a lot of money, and I I'd work for that money, or I'd save that money in order to like go the go like do the searching. So yeah, I, I made the first software when I was fifteen years old, and then it's, in terms of like when I started getting um, plugged into the larger community of programmers, that wasn't until maybe college um, when I was maybe 20 when I started reading different um, when I started getting exposed to um, you know Alan Kay Paul Graham uh, his writing on Lisp and um, um, uh, I think Engelbart still a little bit later um, there was a talk I'm, I'm blanking on the name but there was a talk uh, about constructing a language. Do you remember that? Guy Steel. Guy Steel. Oh my God. That this was. Came, yeah. yeah. What was the talk called? Uh, growing language. Growing language. Yeah. That was mind blowing to me. That was like one of the times that I. They kind of pushed me to be more interested in programming as a craft and as a science rather than being the very product oriented per person that mm. I that I was. Because, you know, as uh, 15, 16, I was. Uh, I was interested in computers, but I was also like, I just want to make it make applications. Uh, but then around that time, when I started reading all these uh, influences, I started understanding that this there's like deep art in 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 what we're doing, and um, and uh, you know when when I discovered uh, via Paul Graham's writing uh, on Lisp. And the kind of origins of, of Lisp and what McCarthy discovered, and um, you know how most of the ideas of programming, most of the ideas in dynamic programming came from Lisp. Um, that that really got me into um, into kind of like really studying the 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 theory behind things, and I picked up uh, SickB afterwards and, and started playing around with that. Mm. Outside of school, you just Yes, cool was mostly Java and C++ and kind of boring things. Uh, I was I didn't really learn that much in terms of programming. The only thing that school was good for me was um, forcing me to learn the low-level stuff. Because mm. on your own, you can learn a lot of things, but you're like not incentivized to learn assembly. Right, you're not incentivized to learn computer architecture, and so I think that's the only thing that school was good for. It was like forcing function to learn these things, but otherwise, on the programming side, I had to do a lot on my own. Um, luckily, I had a, like a good peer group of people that we we were all like sort of sharing the stuff between each other and and learning together. So, sort of also, I should say what SICP is. SICP is structure. An interpretation of computer programs. It's um, it's it served as the introductory to computer science at MIT for something like thirty years or something like that. It teaches Scheme as an intro to, to programming, and I thought that was fascinating because, like, you, I, I learned a very imperative language, which is Visual Basic, and I always thought, 
what would it be like had I learned Scheme as a first as a first language? But maybe that's a topic for another day. Yeah. No. Well, uh, my I, I can just say from my experience, I learned Logo, and then my second one was Scheme. Mm. So I can say that I I, I really that? enjoyed that that progression. Do you feel like your programming worldview, as it were, is fundamentally different because of that? I think so. I think so. Um, I, and then I went to like Java afterwards, and I remember thinking that Java was just so, uh, like, ad hoc, like the opposite of elegant. Like Scheme, just it, it was like there's just like seven or, or eleven things that I need to learn. But in Java, it was like static, void, main. Like, what are all these words mean? Like, why are they all? You know. Yeah. So. And you think about sort of thinking recursively versus. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. 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 It, it's. Um, that really pushed my brain as a as a kid. I remember uh, feeling like very smart a- a- after like being able to understand the scheme scheme way of thinking. Yeah, when 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 you when you start solving a problem in sort of a functional lispy way, a lot of things start to start falling out of it. Like the merely by starting to construct the program, the program starts writing itself. I don't get that feeling when I'm using something when I'm using something like Python or JavaScript. Uh, sometimes if I'm writing JavaScript in a lispy, like schemey way, I might get that feeling. But I've actually had a recent kind of tweet storm about this that that, that trended a little bit, which which was I feel sad that a lot of sort of product engineers are under tremendous pressure from product managers and work at feature factories that they never experience the joy of having certain features fall out as a result or snap into place as a result of a good design. And that's the kind of feeling you get when you're programming in Scheme is that as you make the first, second, third attempt at the problem, uh, the problem, the sort of the solution starts writing itself, and it, it kind of starts feeling more natural as you go. Whereas in something like Java, a lot of times it feels less natural as you go. Like you start with a very abstract, top-down solution of how the uh, sort of the the system class inheritance would, would look like, and then reality will keep will keep destroying your ambitions as as you go and it'll keep destroying and your product manager will keep kind of bringing in more problems that don't fit the the system that you built <laughs> and uh and, and that's kind of tragic right it's like you design a great system and it gets broken almost immediately the uh i, th- I think uh, the 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 person who really encapsulated that idea is uh, Richard Gabriel mm. and Patterns of Software. Mm. Have you read it? Yeah. So Patterns of Software, um, Richard Gabriel got really got really into, so he, he's a big Lisp uh, guy, right? Of course. Um, he, he's also the guy behind Worse is Better, which I'm sure will come up later as it influenced my thinking a lot. He, um, he basically um, had uh, had been looking at architecture and interior design, and he uh, he read this 
uh, known architect, uh, Christopher Alexander. And uh, he wrote the, the set of books that inspired a lot of software people, actually. Uh, I think it's called Patterns of Design. Something along this line, those lines. And Richard Gabriel took that and he applied it to programming and Lisp and things like that. And what he, some, one of the fundamental conclusions that he came up with is programming is better thought about as patterns as opposed to abstractions. Hmm. And programming is better thought about as a as a habitable system, as a habitat. Like your, your source code is your habitat. And you're trying to make your source code as habitable as possible. And you, you sort of like try to design that in a certain way. And he, he called it, he borrowed it from Christopher Alexander, is the property that, that which cannot be named. It's a certain property that it sounds a little bit mystical, but it's a property about the system that makes you feel at home. Uh, you know, a lot of times you walk into a place and you feel relaxed and you feel at home and you feel creative. You can't really put your hands on it. Um, experienced designers can. They understand why. Um, but it's also still hard to articulate why. So he called that that property that, that cannot be named. And, um, and he applied that to... Uh, to software, so I think I think that that is like a pretty good articulation of this idea of how you can create a system that sort of becomes better with time, as opposed to you know the usual code rot and 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 things like that. Mm. Do you remember ha- like what would be the principles by which you make this happen? Instead of he. Um, he talked about abstractions as encoding. You're encoding a lot of information in this symbol. And you're basically creating new names. Um, as you create more names and vocabulary, it gets like, it gets, the system gets more complex and it gets more opaque. However, if you shift your thinking and start thinking about uh, software in terms of patterns, like when I look at a piece of code, I see a pattern and I can replicate that pattern in different places. I don't have to abstract it. I can like rewrite it or even copy paste it, but I know what that pattern looks like. Mm. Uh, or I can build a framework or I can build a generator or I can build a ma- uh, macro that, or whatever it is that can create that pattern. This is a much more portable, much more habitable way of doing software than 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 abstractions and and heavy use of abstractions. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So that that's one of them. There's a lot that's the book talked about. It's it's a bit poetic for a book. It's not. He's a poet. Yeah, you know the, you know that there's two schools of thinking. I think in programming, uh, one is like very analytic, very mathematical. very mathematical. I fall into the sort of very. Um, I I'm like a very intuition driven mm. um uh i'm comfortable with uh i'm comfortable with sort of notions that don't map strictly onto reality and uh and uh, you know you know, 
properties that cannot be named, you know, that sort of thing. And I, and I, I, I like that, that thing because I think, I think words are constraining, right? When you, the moment you try to articulate thing, you're sort of trying to boil down a whole array of, of thought and, uh, and, um, and, and and so so I think I, I you know some people might scoff at that and say you know this this might seem like too mystical too too weird but but uh, I like that type of stuff. Hmm. I, I could see why Richard Gabriel would appeal to you. Yeah, <laughs> I've seen him at conferences. The last talk I saw him give was on his poetry generating system. Mm. So uh, he's all about that. I'm I'm going to a conference. He's a big part of. Um, in a, a week, I guess, two weeks. Oh, it's really? Programming angle brackets. Oh. I think he's one of the organizers of this conference. Here in SF? In Italy, actually. Oh, wow. I think they alternate between the States and, and Europe every year. So That's cool. Yeah, I I, uh, I wish I, I had more time to do things like, do things like that. And I, I, I'm trying to structure my life in order to do that, but uh, hoping to do that soon. Cool. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so um, maybe let's go through your your career a bit. You started working on this in 2011, Replit stuff? Actually, the first time I got the idea for uh, an in-browser REPL was 2009. Oh, okay. Well, uh, a long time ago. Yeah. And and you started it then? or I attempted it then. I think I was able to like write a quick like REPL that has like a text area and like an eval, and like you could like write some JavaScript and it evals it. And I actually ran it on my Symbian phone, and I was coding on the bus mm. um, to school, and um, that was one. And then the first time I actually probably got something working that other people could use, probably around 2010, I got a Scheme interpreter running in the in the browser, and I wrote some terminal emulator that later became became the library that we call JQ Console. Um, and yeah, that was that was around 2010. But the real breakthrough that we made, because we, uh, I always wanted to like be uh, cross language and like support more than one language. The breakthrough that we made with was around 2011, uh, and we like basically, and I can get into that if you want. But uh, we basically used Mscripten. We were the first production application to use Mscripten to compile C, Python, C, Ruby, and a bunch of other interpreters to JavaScript. And then we open sourced it, and we were in Hacker News in different places, and that that sort of started what became not just Replit, what what became a lot of different other projects that that I worked on. Mm. Is that how you started working at Code Academy after you did yeah. this? They recruited you. Yeah, so I open sourced the engine. Uh, I should say, like um, Hayaz, who's my current co-founder, also like helped me at the time. Uh, she's also my wife, and my friend Max from college helped me with the project. But then uh, we saw a bunch of companies start using it in the U.S. and Udacity, Code Academy, a bunch of others. And it was really surreal because, like, you know, we were just like a few kids from Jordan, and like now you you have this like global impact, and that was that was strange, right? I. I still can trap my head around sort of like my journey so far. It's becoming more, um, you know, more more people are starting to go through that where they release a piece of software and they 
and they get a lot of opportunities out of that and i think that's that's fantastic right so um so i joined code academy because they were they were using our software and i like the founders, they came to Jordan actually to recruit me. No way. Yeah, yeah. So they they flew to Jordan. They they finished YC and they wanted me to join, and they flew to Jordan. And then um, I took them around, showed them around a little bit. And at first we disagreed on the um, on the um, equity. I wanted more equity in the company, and uh, I said no. And I was driving him to the um, airport, Zach. And then he revised the offer on the way to the airport, and and um, and uh, and asked me to sign right then and there, and I, I did. Wow! And, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I came to the U.S. in 2012. Awesome! And and you stayed. You've been here since. Yeah, uh, New York for probably three years. And that's then, where Code Academy is. Yeah, and then 2015 came to San Francisco for Facebook. Um, I always wanted to end up in Silicon Valley. Yeah. So you know, going back to the influences, I think one one of the biggest influence for 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 better or worse, I'm sure people will laugh. It's Pirates of Silicon Valley. Pirates. Yeah. So it's a movie. I don't remember this. Movie. It's a movie about Microsoft and and it's about Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. It's a sort of dramatization of their their battle, dude. It's awesome. Wow. I I watched it. I actually like the, like last year or something like that again, and I thought I was gonna think it was stupid at this point, but it was awesome. I, I loved it. It's um, I love I love that shit. It's um, it's great. So, uh, so I always wanted to end up in Silicon Valley, um, and uh, yeah, f- uh, I started Facebook actually in New York. And I wanted to come here, and they actually didn't pay for the relocation or anything, so I, I really pushed it to to come here. Out of, um, and, and the weather is also nice. Yeah, totally. I so I, part of why you wanted to work at Facebook was React, or is that is that not quite how it worked? Yeah. So actually, a few things. So Internet.org, they were starting to do it at the time. Uh, I always thought that the you know, my story with the internet, um, I couldn't have released the open source version of Replit and, and getting all these different people using it without the internet and opening all these opportunities for me. I, I've been rejected for jobs in Silicon Valley so many times before that happened. Uh, I, I've been applying, tried to get into Google multiple times, like I couldn't. And it's like a fast track. It's like a it's it's truly it's it's truly based on merit. Like you know, I think there's a lot of skepticism right now and a lot of um, pessimism that there's anything called uh, merit or meritocracy. Uh, and I wrote about this at some point, and they um, got a lot of hate for it. But yeah, I saw that. <laughs> but the the idea is that really software and the internet creates a system. That is that allows for allows for people to get ahead using their merit. It allows it actually makes prejudice a lot less prevalent. Pre- prevalent. It makes um, if you're a racist on the internet and you're gonna have to find my sort of identity in order to discriminate against me, you're you're the loser, right? But if you're 
the the guys from Code Academy and you want a really talented engineer, you you just you don't care. I proved myself, right? So um so I, I, I think I think you know I'm 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 really optimistic about the internet and all these different things. And so when uh Facebook and Zuckerberg started talking about internet.org, I thought that was a really good idea. And at the time there was the rise of Android. And I, th- I think Android is is another one of those things that uh, that's a great equalizer. Um, Apple is like you know building computers for rich people. Um, I think Android enabled computers for everyone, and both those things kind of really uh, attracted me to Facebook because Facebook was putting a lot of energy into Android. They had their home product. They were doing Internet at Oregon. I'm like you know. I can go there and contribute to to a platform that's that's bringing a lot of people internet. Uh, and went to, went into Facebook, tried to get into the internet.org team. They didn't accept me. Uh, Facebook's kind of funny at the time where you had basically to do two interviews. You had to get into in the into the company, and then you had to pick a team. And and that, that was like that was a really hard hard thing to do. But I did a lot of Android, and. Um, the first thing that I noticed is that the development experience just sucks. Mm. Like you change one line of code and you would wait 20 minutes for the build. Yeah. It's insane. Like coming from web development, it's, it's just like preposterous. Like even coming from Visual Basic or C++ or whatever, like I know there's like large code bases, but still that's like insane. So I started looking within the company at um, who's, who's trying to solve this problem. I saw this internal project at the time. It was called Catalyst, and and it kind of made sense. Catalyst, like make, making making you know mobile development easier, and start talking to the team. Start talking to I think Jordan Jordan Walk, the inventor inventor of React and React Native, and I really wanted to get involved. Uh, I thought that. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of preposterous that if you want to if you want to build apps for Android, you, oh sorry for for Apple, let's say you have to buy the Apple phone, which is I don't know five hundred to a thousand dollars, and then you have to buy a MacBook Pro, which is a couple couple grand as well, and then on top of that, you have to give Apple a hundred dollars to become a developer, and then maybe you can write some some software for your phone. And I saw React Native as a way to sort of undercut that entire process and start kind of shipping software. And the idea that I can like ship software over the air and just download JavaScript and start and have it run in the on the um, on the uh, device is was something that's really interesting to me. And and so that's that's how I got got into React and React Native. Cool. Yeah, make, makes sense with the whole Replit mission. Of a, uh, like a quicker start, uh, you don't have to like get all. You don't have to buy a specific computer. It works anywhere, and then also the feedback loop as well. So as far as feedback loop goes, I I, I feel like um, we should talk about REPLs. That's like the, the right time. Yeah, I, got, I imagine you first were exposed to REPLs with your like exposure to Lisp. That oh uh, no, before that, before. Visual Basic. Uh-huh. Visual Basic has this thing. It's amazing. It's called the immediate. So you hit a breakpoint in Visual Basic, and once you hit a breakpoint, I think you hit Escape or something like that, which I think what Chrome kind of emulated, right? Um, you get the immediate, and the immediate is basically a REPL. 
and you can change variables in scope. You can step in, step out of things. And I lived in the immediate. Like, I love the immediate. I just, you know, I am a very, um, a very tactical programmer. I like to be in the thing, right? Um, you know, in a Richard Gabriel sense, I like to live in the software, right? And what better way to live in the software by being in the runtime and kind of like exploring the environment interactively? So the immediate was my first uh, interaction with uh, with Repls, and then the uh, second one was I think Firebug. I think it's probably Firebug. The second time I I I I got into and then and then Scheme. Do you remember Firebug? From uh, yeah, I. Don't know if I ever used it. Firefox yeah. development thing. Yeah, it's, it's basically the first Dev Tools. Oh, was it? Yeah, it's, it's pre Dev Tools, pre Firefox Dev Tools. Hmm. It was it was just called Firebug. Someone wrote it. I think uh, I think a guy that ended up working at Facebook wrote it. I forgot his huh. name, but um, that's cool. But yeah, it, it had a console and a, it had a pretty good REPL, and that that was another time I I, I started using a REPL. Um, and yeah, it, it, yeah, it was just like, to me, it was like, it's, it was insane to like, just do it any other way. <laughs> yeah. It, it was funny. Yeah. Going from a language like scheme when I later learned Java and I was like, where's the REPL? Like I have to like use a, yeah. a file yeah. <laughs> all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I guess they're debuggers and whatnot, but. Although, you know, so we, uh, the other day we, um, we added uh, TypeScript and we added LSP to JavaScript, the language server protocol. And the language server protocol, the language server that we were using was particularly good. And I, I do a lot of exploration of libraries in Replit as, as a lot of our users. And I found that I can just like import a library and start expo- exploring it statically. And the static mm-hmm. analysis tools are getting to the point where actually they're really, really, oh, really cool. I'm still, I'm still like the, the the completions almost. Yeah. So they like as you type, let's say you import low dash, and then you hit underscore dot, and you see all the uh, all the um, all the function signatures, and then you hit that little i, and you'll see the doc string as well. So you can mm. read. What, so you could start exploring the library. Of course, eventually you'd want to run it just to make sure it's sure. doing the right thing. Um, but I just want to say it as an aside, as like I'm all, I also am very bullish on static tool, static analysis tools. What I'd love to see, and here's a free idea for anyone who 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 has has time on their hand and they they want to like build something that has a lot of impact. Figure out how to add some kind of runtime. Um, uh, uh, capability to LSP, so LSP mm. is, uh, is all about static analysis. Figure out how to like embed a REPL in LSP. So imagine as I like I can as I as I finish a statement, uh, it just evaluates and shows me in the editor. Mm. I there's there's a ton of people that did experiments like that, and I, I've done experiments like that. But um, LSP is finally sort of becoming the standard tool that all editors use. So if you just do that, then you immediately have an audience of, you know, a couple hundred thousand programmers at least, if not millions. Mm, that's a great point. Yeah, building things on top of LSP, such a meta impact. 
Yeah. I don't know if Microsoft is expanding LSP all that much. I didn't see a lot of activity in, in it, but you could probably hack it in. Mm. I, I did an interview with a Quinn Slack of Sourcegraph. Mm-hmm. He, he's, he's, he's also a big fan. Yeah. Yeah. I, ma- I imagine like people in this community, like de- developer tools people, are like uh, the people who really love LSP. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, we, we use it uh, on Replit. Like without it, we would have to build a different protocol for every, for every language and we just use LSP. Yeah. yeah. And you, you guys use Monaco too? Yes, Monaco, Monaco. yeah, Monaco, yeah. Mm-hmm. Nice. Um, so I, I think it would be interesting to go through um, how you grew Replit because I know that it, it started off really small and then you just keep adding things. Yeah, yeah. So it started off as like this inscripting compiled yeah. thing for, well, originally it was just JavaScript, it sounds like, or? Inscripting uh, compiled, it was Python, Ruby, uh, Lua, and a bunch of like small languages, mm. yeah. So it, you started with a bunch of languages, kind of all at the game. Yeah, it was it was part of the plan the whole the whole time. Like so, it's an interesting way to go. Like to start with like ten ten from the get go. I love languages. Like I I just wrote this uh, yesterday in our graphics announcements GFX. Uh, I wrote that we spent a lot of time worrying about how to do things in a cross language way because I believe in the plurality of the programming communities. You know, there's like every every decade someone is going to predict that some language is going to take over the world. Right now, it's JavaScript. I think that's BS. We'll always have a lot of languages. And you know that. You, you do a lot of research on, on programming languages. I love the just like getting into a new language and learning a new mental model. It's just It's just amazing. It's like... It's like learning a new superpower. Yeah, I, I enjoy it. You know, it's what I do all the time. Yeah, so yeah. And it has that played out in... Because I could see a world where you have Repl that allows for 30 languages, but like people only use two. Does it, is that how it plays out? Or is yeah, it, it's, there's, a, there's a power law distribution. Sure. So anything on the internet you do, there's going to be a power law distribution. It's, it's like the internet law, right? It's like, so... Uh, we have a power law. It's uh, Python, JavaScript, Java, and then the drop-off starts becoming really steep, and then goes to C, C plus plus, and then uh, then you have like a few dynamic languages, Ruby, whatever, and then uh, yeah, but, like you go from tens of thousands of users a day, um, you know, single-digit thousands, and and as as you go to like. Crystal, probably like a couple hundred users or something like that. Yeah, but the ar- the architecture is such that it doesn't cost much to maintain the languages that nobody uses. Yeah, so that's where we're trying to get to, and this is like where a lot of the work is going into. But you can think about it as um, actually Amazon is a good good example. When Amazon started out, they wanted to have every book um, in the in the system. And that created a network effect. Even if you, even if you're always going to buy the New York Times bestsellers, yeah, yeah. there's a huge parallel with books as well. Yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, that one time, every however many years that you buy this esoteric book, you're going to go to Amazon mm. right? because you know it's there. Mm. Um, 
That's a, that's a great analogy. Yeah, and so it's the same thing with us, and we want to get as many of the tools, as many of the languages, because I think that network, network effect exists with us as well. Um, in terms of the architecture, yeah, it's, it's one of the biggest projects that we have to sort of unify all the architecture. Uh, at first, I wrote this like simple REPL protocol, um, but Replit now, like it, it was like basically like eval result, or basically like client says eval, server might say input, so that's a state machine for it. Uh, if the server says input, then you have to send some kind of um, some kind of input result, and then uh, and then the server will say result, right? And that, so that that was like the entire description of the state machine, right? Uh, oh, the server might say print as well. Uh, and, and print is a, like a sort of unilateral event that can happen at, at any time in the in the state. And um, but then now Replit can do web servers, can do games, can do graphics, can do uh, LSP, can do um, you know shell, can do <laughs> all the different things. And um, and uh, that protocol has been stretched to the extreme to support all these different things. And so we started a big rewrite we call the Croesus. And Croesus is uh, a uh, sort of a new protocol that that allows for featureful REPLs that allow you to start web servers and all these different things. Um, I don't get into too much into the weeds there, but... Um, that's one part of it. Another part of it is we're, 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 uh, we have an open source project called Prybar. And Prybar is a, what we call a universal interpreter front end. And so every REPL uh, behaves differently. Um, Pretty different languages. Yeah. So like they have different interfaces. Some REPLs are, allow you to get, pass in an entry file. Some REPLs doesn't allow you to pass in an entry file. Uh, Repls start differently, you know things like that. So, Prybar um, papers over all the different languages to create a single interface that work for any language. So right now, it um, we have support for uh, Python, Ruby, Node. Um, uh, we just added OCaml, um, I think Lua, and a few other languages. And so that's another part of the the architecture that we're building. So we're building a set of abstractions and tools that allows us to build this general purpose REPL-driven development environment. Hmm. And it's, 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 it's a multi-year project. So um, it's been going for a year or so, and I, th- I, th- I think this summer would be able to like start talking about it and blogging about it and hopefully open sourcing large parts of it. Already a big part of it is open source, but we're going to open source the rest of it. I saw you have like a universal package manager yeah. project. Yeah, yeah. so that's another project that, that, that we're excited about. And so um, basically every package manager behaves in a very similar way. So you have a resolver, a resolver like will take an input which is the source files and figure out um, you know where your packages exist and, and resolves those. You have um, you have the actual 
like you know package fetching it needs to know the registry and it needs to grab the the packages from the from the registry it needs to have them in the right place accessible for it needs to have the right environment variables the right paths for the program when it runs to be mm-hmm. able to if it's a dynamic program to be able to load them if it's a compiled program it needs to be able to link against them um, and so having having it in the right location. So once you identify these different principles, you'll be able to create an abstraction on top of the package manager. So we built like a, like what we call a universal package manager that uh, now works with uh, Python, Node, uh, Ruby, um, about to add Go, and a few, few other things. So, you know, if, if we're successful uh, and we open source a lot of these different things, you'll be able to actually like install a single command line and like really run any language uh, from 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 that same interface same binary and mm-hmm. and uh, so that's 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 the ultimate goal wow so you're saying even outside of replit someone could install yeah I mean we haven't seen a lot of pickup uh, on our tools outside of replit but I guess they're not very polish. Yeah, pushed yeah. for the use outside of Replit, and we haven't been advertising them that much, partly because the story is not finished yet, and we don't have the full story yet. Yeah. Um, but if you want to check it out, go to our uh, GitHub organization, particularly check out Prybar. Prybar, I think, is already useful. Cool. So uh, continuing the like scaling up story, mm-hmm. I think it was last year you launched hosting mm-hmm. as like, an extra feature. Mm-hmm. So, so that's the ability to Publish websites, or did you have that before? Or that, or no, this, that was it. So you could like uh, listen on a port, yeah. and then that port is exposed to the web, the internet. Yep. And you don't have to sit like it could be any port, and yeah, you just detect port. it. So what we do? So yeah, yeah, we we do a lot of a lot of magic, um, good magic, not not the kind of obscure magic that that obscures from the development experience. What, what's where? How, where's the line? How do you oh. make sure you don't cross the line? Good magic and bad magic. So the universal package manager, for example, when you click on the package icon and you try to install a package, actually you can you can look at under manual installation, uh, the, like you can expand that. I'll tell you what to do to install it manually. Hmm. And so as much as we can, we what we do is we abstract over the tools. We don't do we don't like we do the manual steps for you. We automate the manual steps. I, I think where magic gets magical is when you monkey patch or when you do something behind the scenes um, or when you hack something in. That's how I think about it. Um, so the fact that you can download any Replit project and run it locally, I think makes it less magic. If we're doing anything uh, like Replit specific, I think that's magical. Um, in terms of like the good magic that I'm talking about, we um, we listen to the Linux audit log, and that's how we figure out when a program opens a port, and then we just hit that port with an HTTP call, and if it's if it's an HTTP server, then we publish that, and we say that's an HTTP server. Um, for graphics, we do this thing uh, called LD preload, and LD preload uh, basically allows you to Pass allows you to link against a library that isn't 
the real library. So if, if, if a program tries to open a window, we masquerade as X, uh, X11. And then when we see that the program is trying to open a window, uh, we actually do it ourselves. We open it in the uh, in, in the background, and then and then we show we show the screen on the on the IDE. Hmm. Um, so w- we follow this thing uh, called uh, we call adaptable IDE. And so one of the things that when 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 like these web IDEs came onto onto the scene, we didn't think they were doing anything special like we always thought that you'd want to have some kind of like web native id it needs to be lightweight it needs to be it needs to boot really fast um and it needs to be very simple it needs to be very accessible and if you keep adding features and keep adding buttons to features you can never achieve those Mm -hmm. goals and the way we try to do it is that the environment detects what you're trying to do. You listen in a port, we know that. Then we open a web view for mm. you to code a web server. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You can definitely your interface is quite simple for how powerful it is. Yeah, that's definitely something noticeable. As opposed to I a lot of other web IDEs take a desktop IDE environment and just webify it. Yeah, basically like um like you know this, uh, I don't know if it's Marshall McLuhan or or something like that. I think talked about how uh, every medium, and it's like a very uh, Brit factor esque point is like every medium needs to be explored on its own merits. And the first attempt usually is you take the yeah, yeah. you take the paradigm from the old medium and you like the first TV program was someone reading a story in front of a camera. <laughs> they were doing what they did for radios in the TV. And so I think the first web IDEs took IDEs and put it in the web in the browser. Yeah. And I think what Replit is is trying to explore what does it mean to actually be yeah, a web yeah, IDE. Yeah. I'm trying to think of how they're going to make fun of our um, VR for our first forays into VR. Right, like they're just computer games. Yes, in three, you know, three <laughs> dimensions. Yes. Do you know? Maybe that's a good way to generate startup ideas. You mean not doing that, or or doing? Yeah, basically, uh, think, thinking from the future back and saying, how would they laugh at us at our use of the fir- of this yeah. new, new? Yeah, because you brought up a good point. Like maybe we're just like putting these video games in VR, and maybe there's something else that we should be doing. Yeah, I, I I've seen some like um, people trying to move coding into VR, yeah. and it's just a text editor, right? In VR, right? And it's like you know, yeah, that doesn't seem to like be native to the experience. Well, I. It, it, it's, it reminds me of exactly what you like the joke of um, someone reading a, um, on, on television, just reading a story. Yeah. Uh, um, there are VR codings of like someone, you're like on a computer in VR coding <laughs> on your computer. Yeah. That's, <laughs> like we have nowhere to run. Yeah, obviously that's, that's wrong. Right? Yeah. And like maybe you should. Um, the screen is just, you know, this big. Right, know? yeah. 
like the, my first VR experience was the living room, and you would watch Netflix. Uh, like, oh my god, that's, <laughs> no way! I swear to God, you, you put on VR. Yeah, I put it on. It was at Facebook when they bought Oculus, uh, and you watch Netflix. I watch mm-hmm. Netflix. <laughs> oh my god, on a tiny screen? <laughs> yeah, no, it was it was pretty big actually. Oh, a big screen? Oh, because because it's VR, you might as well have a, a twenty inch screen. Right? Yeah, yeah, it was really big. Um, but uh, it was it was a nice living room as well. It was like it had a had a pinball or whatever. Uh, but like maybe maybe if you want to program in VR, maybe you should like like interact, you know, with your hands with with uh, with the code in quotation code. You know, maybe you're moving around, you know, syntax trees or something like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or well, I feel like the the a lot of people do like the nodes and wires programming, right? Uh, the like uh, so I, I that th- visual programming feels yeah. like it could it could be quite powerful and. Right. right, yeah. I, I continue to be long-term bullish on visual programming. I think we'll get there. Uh, I, I haven't seen anything that's that's that uh, exciting. Yeah, that that's exciting in that space. Since it was was it, what was the what was the one that Alan Kay talked about? Like, um, it wasn't really visual programming, but it was like it was this. Uh, it was this like maybe equation solver or something like that. Um, that he had he has this famous video on on YouTube where he's playing around with it. I forgot what it was called. Oh, it's Sketchpad. Sketchpad. Ivan Sutherland. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Sketchpad. That's Sketchpad. Alan Kay's talk, right? I think uh, Alan Kay talks about it, but it was an Ivan Sutherland creation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and there was a Grail as well. Grail. I don't remember, bro. Yeah, but anyways, th- those those are like really interesting, and I, I don't think we've made that much progress beyond that. Yeah, that's funny. This episode is brought to you by a sponsor, and I'm going to give you one guess who that sponsor is. It's Repelit. I hope you've been enjoying this interview so far. I'm listening back to it again after having... I, I did the edit for this episode months ago, and I've been sitting on it waiting to bring it out, and now is the time. I'm listening through it again, and I'm really enjoying it. It's nice for me to be able to appreciate this interview as a member of the audience rather than as the person actually doing the interviewing and stressing about having asked the right questions and wondering whether it's really relevant and all that. I just get to kind of sit in the passenger seat for this one and enjoy it. And uh, the one other privilege that I have as the person in the editor's chair is that I know what's coming up in the second half. And let me tell you, it gets pretty interesting. There's a a lot of uh, neat sort of bigger picture kind of thinking that, that comes up for the remainder of this interview. So stay tuned for that. But of course, Replit, they are the sponsor of the transcript for this podcast, which you can find at futureofcoding.org slash episodes slash 52. And uh, along with that transcript at that URL, you will also find some links to some of the things that were mentioned in the discussion so that you can dig into some of those things if you are interested in learning more about them. 
Do I need to tell you what Replit is? This is a ad break. This is a sponsor break. Uh, this is normally where I would talk about what Replit is and what they do. I think Amja does a pretty good job of that, um, considering you know his position as the person who created the dang thing. And it's uh, it's really neat to hear what it's like from his side of the table. And I I just think it's it's cool once again to look at what Replit is doing as a possible. Um, not like a template, but as a as an example of what it would be like for us to take our own future of coding visions and to turn them into thriving independent businesses. And a lot of the struggles that he's talking about in this episode are, are the very same struggles that we will run into as we try to do this ourselves. And so I've I've enjoyed hearing that. But yeah, you you know what Replit is. It's an online REPL. It's somewhere you can go and write code. A lot of people are going there to write code in many different languages. A lot of people who are in school are going there to learn how to program for the first time. Like I've said in, in past sponsor breaks for Replit, they are constantly working on new interesting projects, libraries for making games, libraries for doing server stuff, libraries for doing communication, new features like the multiplayer feature so that multiple people can jump into the same REPL and work collaboratively. They're using their position as a company that is sort of at the at the forefront of pushing for better and better developer tools to do really interesting little projects um, and I like that I like that sort of that that multi faceted approach to building out little constellations of ideas around their core vision. I think that that's really cool. I think that that's a great way of, of taking advantage of the core product that they've built, but also taking advantage of the enthusiasm of the community that is sprung up around Replit. I enjoy hearing and seeing all the ways that that manifests. All that said, uh, I just want to once again thank Replit for sponsoring the transcript and being a long-running participant in our community and in helping to bring all of us the future of coding. Education has become a huge market for you guys. Yeah. Because um, there are a lot of different ways to play a online, like uh, a develop. Well, you're like a developer tools company, yeah. but you're you've gone to the education side. Yeah. Which um, it's interesting because as far as developer tools go, neither market it, like selling to developers isn't like something that excites venture capitalists, nor is right. education. You, yeah. you've, you've chosen. Yeah, we've chosen the worst of both words, which made made it really hard to raise money at first. I bet. Um, and that's why we had to make money really early on. And I, I put a lot of my own money into into the company and. Um, I think I think eventually, what happened was that they really got the vision and they understood that we need to exist in in both worlds, right? So, Apple, for example, wasn't you know technically an That's education true. company, right? That's true. Like what Apple, the first Apple customer segment they sold to was was education. Um, and still, and still big in education, although like Chromebooks are just eating the world. Yeah, yeah. deservedly. Yeah, and then. Even even Microsoft like did a lot of instead of education. They gave a lot of their tools, you know, Visual Studio and these things where yeah. where like they focused a lot on education together. Mm-hmm. So I, I think there's there's a history of platforms being very you know developer platforms being very like education heavy and mm-hmm. um, or focusing on the younger generation. I think you know Adobe. I think probably will never admit that, but. 
a big part of what make, made Adobe the you know giant behemoth that it is today is that all the kids in the 90s and 2000s that pirated uh, Photoshop. Hmm. I and, think, and then those kids grew up and worked at companies that would pay for Photoshop. Yes. Nice. Yeah. Well, so I feel like this. You've you've told me about how this is your your replit, you know, sinister plan. Yeah. That <laughs> you, uh, it's like you have this long plan of yeah. you like you give replit to the kids for free today, mm-hmm. and then either they're going to go work at companies or they'll start companies themselves, and then pay for it somewhere down the line. Yeah, and we want to be able. We want to align ourselves with them as much as possible. It's not like we want to use them as a sort of a Trojan horse only. Uh, although that's 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 on the table, but um, what really excites me and something that I've made progress on in my own thinking since I think we talked about this was that I feel like there's going to be a, sort of a resurgence in independent software vendors. Hmm. I think you know there's a movement with um, you know indie hackers with a lot of the, what Stripe is doing around. You know what they're talking about with you know growing the GDP of the internet and getting more internet entrepreneurs. I think that that stuff is really happening, and I think with the tools that we're doing and that we're building and and other companies are building. You had a uh, Vlad with Webflow mm. on your show, and like a lot of non-coders now are are making websites as well and and selling them. And I think we're gonna see a big uptick in software entrepreneurship on the small side, on the like one to two person startups. Uh, and that's incredibly exciting for us uh, because uh, I think we'll be able to build tools that they could use to monetize their software. Mm. And this is where I'm spending most of my sort of energy experimenting and, and mm. thinking about. Yeah, that's very exciting. Yeah. It, 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 it's, it's so cool. Like the, the better the tools get, the more like superpowers one or two people have. Yeah. They can like do really impressive, powerful you know, things, build build like businesses or tools that other people could use. Yeah. Just one or two people. Yeah. And it's like it's better for the world. It's like creates more wealth outside of the already wealthy companies, right? Mm. Um it allows communities to take ownership over their own software. Yep. I think you know the the global software phenomena in Google and Facebook and these Silicon Valley companies is is probably not going to be the norm. Those are like you know we call them you know these Silicon Valley startups are, are, are unicorns, right? I think most of the so- software that we're going to see going forward are going to be local, community, homegrown software. Mm. Uber is an interesting case study. Silicon Valley VCs and analysts um, thought that Uber is going to take the Facebook playbook and grow country by country and take over the world, right? And there's going to be some kind of network effect. Like, you can argue about the network effects of drivers or whatever, but I don't care about that. I think what really mattered for Uber is the culture. They really couldn't figure out different cultures Mm. because it was like a very Silicon Valley US-centric view of the world. In Jordan, they get destroyed by a company called Kareem. Hmm. And now Dubai, and now it's sticking over the Middle East. They basically won. Yeah, hmm. they won over the Middle East. And, you know, Didi in China, and there's, there's I'm sure, one in India and different places. So, the, so like, basically Uber is relegated to the West, Uber and Lyft, and, and they couldn't capture the rest of the world. 
Um, and the reason, if you look at it, is because they couldn't pick up uh, cultural norms in these places. Uh, in Jordan, for example, like people don't sit um, in, the back. in the back seat. It's kind of disrespectful. For even when they're taking a taxi, even if you're taking a taxi, um, if it's if if you're you and someone else are taking a taxi, there are two of you. One sit in front, and one one sit in back. No way, so, wow. yeah, yeah, huh? Uh, unless you're a woman, and then then you can sit in back comfortably. I see. Okay, um, that's just one tiny example. Another is uh, a lot of people want to pay cash, and Uber just didn't have a way to pay cash. Oh wow! Yeah. People don't have credit cards. I, yeah, if I were working Uber, Uber expanding to other markets, I wouldn't. It wouldn't occur to me yeah. that someone would want to pay cash. Yeah, people. It's part of my favorite part about Uber that you. Yeah, people don't have banks in most places in the world. Most people are unbanked. <laughs> wow. And, still. Yeah, and so I think it was like a blip in history that we had these mega software corps, mm. and I think going forward we're going to see more decentralizing effect of software. Yeah. yeah. That that's I hope I hope for that too, uh, and I, I I agree. And that part of why I and I think a lot of other people are excited about democratizing programming is uh, to decentralize programming, mm-hmm. like like bring the power back to the people. And there's something I feel like Brett Victor and all of these people talk about how um, there's like a totalitarianness to. If you need thousands of people in order to build a code, in order to build software that's worth using, there's like a top-down structure. Yeah. Uh, and but if if one or two people could build software worth using, then we have like a much more decentralized, uh, beautiful. Does Brett Vector uh, say how this affects the quality of the software or the quality of the programming environments? Or it's more of a like. like um, a programming language um, that require the programming languages of today, like the fact that Microsoft Word is like millions and millions of lines of code, means that like uh, regular people can't build a competitor to it. it the, the, the phrase that's coming to mind is like a Jeffersonian quality of like mm-hmm. being able to mend your own clothes, mm-hmm. you know, like being being more in charge of your own destiny. Right, 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 right. Uh, as opposed to like a big company somewhere else. It requires a lot of engineers to make it happen. I wonder, though, what what downstream effects it will have on the the experience, the programming experience, because or like, okay, what we were talking about earlier with the you know, Richard Gabriel and patterns of software and things like that. Maybe we're like too abstraction heavy, too Java class uh, heavy. Because we need to coordinate across thousands of programmers, mm-hmm. because like the, the the those languages were made for the Microsofts and the mm-hmm. and the, the I don't know the banks of the world, right? Yeah. Um, and maybe and maybe like a more lean, decentralized like software creators would need would not need that sort of firepower. Mm. Would they need different languages? Oh yeah, they would need they would need they would. They would have more personable, mm-hmm. more fun, yeah. Languages less top down, more. Yeah, I yeah. feel like like Lisp kind of is a good example of a language that's hard to use. Like for example, macros I think are something that's like notoriously a bad idea to use in a team setting because 
uh, it's like just takes so long to learn someone else's like weird macro setup. But um, if it's just like Paul Graham by himself, like macros could allow him to be so much more productive and have so much yeah. more fun. I actually had this discussion with Paul Graham the other day on Twitter uh, about um, about units of abstraction. Mm. So I, I, I had this tweet storm about how you know you know design how you design a system and features start fall, falling out because the system is well designed. And I think he he had a tweet storm following that talking about how if you keep your code um, small, um, you could like put it together in more interesting ways. It was like a kind mm. of like a inspired baby yeah. by, by uh, what I said. And then my reply to him was that, you know, the most, oh, he was talking about how if you keep your code small, it will kind of feel like Lego and mm. you can put mm-hmm. it together in different ways to create different variations of your software. Yeah, And I do agree with that. But my point to him was the the most composable type of software is not code. It's protocols. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think code is not very composable. I think what's what's more composable is RPCs, HTTP, um, any type of like air-gapped protocol, even if it's not air-gapped, agent-based model, um, even channels, Things that look like the original vision of object-oriented programming from uh, from Alan Kay, where he says that his vision is his inspiration for object-oriented programming was where logical systems or uh, computers on the network, and of course, what object-oriented programming today is not is nothing like that. It's basically like statically linked code. It's not like really talking messages. It's uh, it doesn't most 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 object oriented program doesn't even have dynamic dispatch and and uh, you know there's nothing about it that that feels like what 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 Alan Kay was talking about. And my my point to PG is that maybe the the Lego structure we should start thinking about is more process oriented and less code oriented. I think part of what what Replit is doing. So, if you think about GitHub as 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 sort of a text storage and linking system, uh, and not to say I love GitHub, but it is ultimately it's text, right? Yeah. Replit is live code uh, system. If we figure out how to create live interdependencies between programs then we would have achieved that original vision of kind hmm. of um, object, original vision of object-oriented programming, kind of programs talking through the network with each other. And so how this sort of comes all together is that I imagine a world where you have these independent software vendors and programmers and if they want to build something as complex as a Google or as complex as SAP, the way it gets composed is via these different components being different processes that talk a certain protocol, a certain contract, and you can and, and like and then can be composed together to form a larger uh, software. Hmm. Um, now you need some kind of incentives to play in place, right? 
So different p- groups of people would make different ones. Well, different groups of people will make different different uh, different uh, software components, and then let's say one group of people will make SAP, one group of people will make a CRM, one group. Of, but you could use the different components that the community already created. Now it's starting to sound like like open source, but it's not actually. Um, it might be open source, but that's not the point. The point is that it, it is live running software that's see, that's 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 interacting with each other. Now, this is probably like where a lot of your listeners will probably like you know drop out when I mention the dreaded word crypto. But I, I do think that there's 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 and I'm like by the way I'm like one of the biggest crypto skeptics. Um, but uh, you know, but I think. There's some place for crypto to figure out the incentives for software collaboration, for decentralized software collaboration. Mm-hmm. I think that, if anything, that would be its biggest use case for mm-hmm. programmable money. If you can figure out how to, mm-hmm. like, you could spin up a load balancer, and then I could use your load balancer. And somehow, any like money I can make, I can kick back, kick back to your load balancer as it's serving me traffic, right? Huh? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I, I hadn't heard of this um, application of crypto since uh, Juan Bennett was talking about it at some point. Okay, he was talking about a similar thing? He was talking about a similar thing, and the way he put it, which was very different, was, was almost like the distinction between static and dynamic. I think he was thinking about it like analyzing your code and figuring out that you use a certain package and charging, uh, as opposed no. to, this is like a runtime thing, like yes. you used my load balancer like, you use it you, t- ten times in the last minute. Like I'm going to charge you. Yeah, I, everyone talks about this code analysis. I, I was talking to uh, CEO, the founder of uh, Coinbase. I was mentioning. He was like, "Oh yeah, yeah, well, yeah. We looked into this code thing, but this is not what I'm talking about. Like, uh, no, it's what I'm talking about is uh, live, decentralized, small talk, almost like system on a global scale. Mm. Can we figure out global software collaboration?" It's a, uh, yeah, and run it with running code. With running code, yeah. It, it's like it, it's like a, a almost SaaS. Like you're paying paying per request. Uh, and so I, I yeah, I'm interesting. I'm interested in figuring out like how the pricing would work. Yeah, there's there's a lot of details to work there, yeah, out there, uh, and um, yeah, I, I'd be willing to obviously like do the work and sit down and like it out, yeah. work it out. But it it is kind of like a very high level of the idea yeah, at this yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. And, then, and then I'm thinking like uh, you want almost like an exchange. So if like or I, I if if I'm going to pay someone for a load balancer, I don't want to pay someone. I want like to get the cheapest load balancer. So I almost want like a load balancer balancer to like send me to whoever is like. Not busy at the moment and give me the cheapest right. price. Th- then you'd you'd have markets. Uh, <laughs> yes, you'd have a market. Of, sort of prop up to to, to sort of yeah. work that out, right? Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. Um, but imagine the end state, and imagine how beautiful that is—a global sort of software, autonomous software collaboration system—and um, uh, and how how much we can create with it. At that point, I would I would say visual programming is, is a breeze because mm. we already know how programs talk. We already know how mm. you know how data moves. Then we have to string them together. There's a lot of things that you have to think about, like to think about privacy, to think mm, about yeah. 
uh, user user data. Think about it. like if you if my user data is going through a hundred vendors, which by the way they already are. Like yeah, if you sign up to any startup, you, your data is in Intercom, your data is in uh, Google Analytics, your data is in. It's everywhere, right? So, like, yeah, Salesforce. So, so it's not like we're introducing new problems. Some yeah. of them are existing problems, but but there are ideas out there about like how to figure out like how do you spin up uh, a sort of a software system that allows that also that has privacy built in, even even kind of opaque to the programmer themselves. Um, but yeah, there's a lot to figure out. Yeah, it makes me think it's basically like AWS, but decentralized. So instead of having to learn all of the AWS products to do all the things, like everyday people are making new developer services. Yes, exactly. So AWS steals from the community. Um, AWS just forked Elastic. Mm-hmm. They just screwed them over, right? They they saw a, a business that was working and they're like, all right, time to bring it in-house. And they brought it in-house and they screwed over. They, they're going to do it to every database service that's out there. Why? Because the incentives are not there. If the incentives are there and Elastic doesn't even have to open source their, their code, they can just exist on the network and then you have a contract with them and you could use the Elastic provider as part of your app and there's some kind of money flow where you know, so there's some kind of revenue share between AWS and Elastic. Then the incentives are there, and there, there wouldn't be any encroaching like that. Mm. But right now, we're just in a world that it's just going to keep creating gods mm. like Amazon. Yeah, yeah like that's all. not fun. Like you know, we like it's not the kind of world I want to live in. And by the way, I don't want, I don't want, like I want us to be really big and impactful. But I don't want us to be like this big bloated company. Like I want to figure out a way if we can like create a new type of company when there's there's alignments between ourselves and our developers, where we work for our developers and our developers work for us. So we have a, a big impact without having to bloat too much. Hmm. Yeah, it, this reminds me of like the, the paradox of of startups. Like if people who work at startups don't want to work at big companies, but the goal of every startup is to become <laughs> a big company. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or, or you know, there's there's a new trend in startups where they're achieving really big financial outcomes without growing too large. Yeah, um, we, which is the kind of the, the, what we were talking about. The whole, all, all we have such wonderful tools now that small teams yeah. are able to be really impactful. Like WhatsApp wouldn't have existed without Erlang, right? Yeah, and or they Instagram, had, they had fifty yeah. engineers when they got bought for I don't know how many billions of dollars. Um, I was looking at. Uh, uh, I use uh, Robinhood for investment, yeah, and they are about 300 employees, and they have valuation of six billion dollars. So we're we're getting to a place where you can have sort of an outsized impact and an outsized return for yourself and your investors without having to become an all powerful, all seeing god. Yeah, I remember like hearing uh, like early like. Uh, Started people from the like '90s saying that the second you raise money and start a company, you'd have to buy all these servers and hire people just like manage your servers. Yeah. And now you don't even have to hire one person to do to do that job. And why would that trend stop? And so, what's the next step for that trend? Right? Oh, you mean how do we decrease the amount of people we need even more? Yeah, I mean that that trend will continue. 
and with better and better tools. And I think the 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 end outcome is the 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 vision of this one person independent software programmers on the internet um, dealing with crypto and 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 you know um, making money and a kid from uh, India can 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 become a millionaire at 15 years old and I, I think that's a great world yeah that that'd be the kind of world that I, I'd be really excited about about creating yeah not, equality yeah. of opportunity really is this this would be the ultimate equality of opportunity because there's no gatekeepers there's no prejudice you just you and your merit and a lot of people don't want that by the way like the reason why there's like in the US there's like a lot of hate for merit because a lot of people don't want merit, uh, and and tough luck. Like we're, you know, the if 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 that's not what you want. I mean, the alternative is this totalitarian systems that 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 you were mentioning, whether it's li- real totalitarian systems or 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 these like very top down heavy companies mm-hmm. but but I, I think i'd love to live in a world where uh where there's more freedom there's more um meritocracy yeah it's a beautiful beautiful vision it makes sense why it speaks so much to you because it was like your experience yeah of, uh, of, yeah and the experience of a lot of our users now yeah like uh and next month uh samarth uh one of our top replit uh creators He's uh, he's interning with us. He's coming from India, and he's uh, he's 16 years old. It's so impressive. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I I was really uh, I, I I got a big laugh out of um, on your Twitter feed at some point recently. You like posted something you wanted someone to do, and you like was like whoever gives me the lowest bid, I'll I'll yeah. take that. And it was like unbelievably. It was so low that people were hating on you on Twitter yeah. for like exploiting children. Right. So, but here's the thing: like that kid has no opportunity cost. Like this is, they just wanted to do it. Like and playing Xbox is the opportunity yes, cost. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and he loved doing it, and his software is running, and now uh, I use it every day. And it's like a, a resume thing for him. A pride, a pride thing, thing yep, for him. Exactly. And and he got he got paid you know forty five dollars, which is like for a thirteen year old kid is not is not bad at all. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've, have you thought about, or I don't, maybe this legally wouldn't make any sense, turning this into a service? Because I feel like there are people who would pay children mm-hmm. uh, to, to code for them. Yeah, I, I think definitely like you need to look at the legal, legality of it, but ultimately our platform is, is going to be about that. It's going to be about how do, you, how do you learn how to code and then how do you make money with programming. So the initial... Um, Part of our life and my career has been how to make programming tools um, easier and and more accessible. And I think that the latter half now is going to be taking that vision and merging it with how do you translate that into economic activity? How do you translate that into Mm. money? I have this tweet pinned on my uh, Twitter profile, excerpt from a book, and the title is Ideas Become Wealth. Hmm. And this is really what we're going to be about. We're going to be about shortening the distance between ideas and wealth. Hmm. We're going to be about shortening the distance between labor and capital. 
and this is the thing that we're mostly interested in. Write that down. That's well. That's I, I, I like that as a title. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Shortening the distance between. Yeah, ideas and wealth, and 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 labor and capital. Hmm. Cool. Well, one of the phrases I saw on the internet that I really liked was you talked about leapfrogging the REPL. Yeah. In the same the way. That, oh, yeah, leapfrogging. Yeah, 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 of course. Leapfrogging the IDE. Yeah, so leapfrogging the IDE was that I was thinking about as more people are using Replit as, if not a primary, maybe a secondary development environment, a lot of them are actually using it as a primary development environment. What does it mean for IDEs? Like, we have a lot of IDE features, but ultimately, like, we're still a REPL. We load really fast. Um, it's perfect for smaller projects. And um, one mental model to think about this is how uh, there's this leapfrogging effect where you have certain countries in the world and certain generations. Uh, move on to a new instantiation of a technology without having to go through the existing infrastructure. So in large parts of Africa, never got the landline. They jumped straight to the, to the, to the cell phone. Most of Europe and the Western world had to go through the, uh, had to go through landlines before they got to cell phones. Right. But then if you have sort of, uh, if you have a greenfield, you can leapfrog. And for us, young programmers are that greenfield. We can sort of leapfrog that old clunky mm. sort of IntelliJ IDE type system, mm. jump straight to a more fluent, uh, collaborative, always-on development environment. Mm. Yeah. You're spoiling these kids. Yeah. <laughs> and, and by the way, I don't think it's only us. Uh, Jupyter Notebook... Uh, mm. is, is a big one. Uh, all, all sort of uh, Next Journal, all, all these notebook systems uh, are really awesome. A lot of other online IDs. So it's it's a movement. Like it's not just it's not just us. Uh, and so um, we talked a bit about how like added features to the REPL and it like got more and more full featured. Um, and we talked about the multi-language and abstracting everything. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts about more of the future of Replit, uh, the, the other exciting directions to go. And I know, I know you, you have so many interesting ones. Yeah, so uh, the grand vision is basically what I laid out. I'd like to contribute to that world where we, we create that, that world of independent software vendors. I don't know how the mechanics exactly would work, but this is where we want to go. Um, in terms of if you want me to get me get more concrete about that, um, or, sure, or just features. Well, I, I I feel like that's interesting, and also uh, if you have ideas on like the, the technical ways, to, like the programming language ways, you, you'll make that a reality. Yeah, I'm, I'm not thinking too much on the programming language level, although I'd want to. Part of the reason, or the the, the tools. Yeah. yeah, part of the reason I'm not thinking on the programming language level is because. We need to be neutral uh, on Replit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a lot of language creators, actually. Like yesterday, we angered some people from the Elm community because we had promised them to add Elm, but then it took us took us like a lot longer than, than they expected. And so people are seeing us as as this neutral ground right now. So I like, see. I I think we just we just took a stance on that, and I think we need to we need to keep keep I see. keep 
keep uh, keep being as language agnostic as as, as we can. And so, uh, and I, I, I you know explained earlier that I, I believe in the plurality of software community. I believe in experimentation, and so I want Replit to be a part of that. In terms of where, uh, but but that doesn't mean that I that. Uh, we're not enhancing the development environment, but we're more thinking on a systems level right now. We have some projects uh, where we're doing things in certain programming languages or certain environments. Um, uh, for example, a previous guest of yours, Glenn, who, if I tried to pronounce his last name, it's going to be uh, it's going to be bloodshed. <laughs> I think it's Kiakieri. Okay, Kiakieri and. Um, he is, he's, for example, doing a little bit of research for us and now building a, a programming uh, library that allows kids to write uh, visual programs and games really easily in Python. And so we have projects here and there where we zoom in on the uh, language or the experience and we try to do it. But more so I'm thinking on a systems level. And so now I'm trying to think about how can we create a general purpose modern IPC. IPC meaning inter-process communication. And I don't mean on a, on a single machine. I mean even over the network. Um, something like, you know, there's protobufs and, and these things, but they're not very expressive. I want something more fluid, more easy to integrate. Can we create a system where it's easy to call call other functions or other methods on different programs in different programming languages over the network, hmm. and if we were able to do that, then you're able to link against other REPLs on the REPLet ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And um, I think link is is the wrong word, but you'll be able to call them, and you'll have this sort of this interaction where you know someone spins up a, a, a service or an API, and everyone's calling each other. Like the easy thing is just to say everything is HTTP, and everything everyone's calling each other. But then you are introducing a lot of overhead to the programmer. Now every programmer needs to create the HTTP service mm-hmm. that you know and the JSON API for it. But we're trying to think about like how to make that more fluid. We have we have a lot of different ideas here and there, but I don't think we have anything concrete to share right now. There's like some Skunkwork projects, but you know, I'd be willing to talk about it more in the future. Mm, makes sense. In the near term, I'd be curious to hear about some of the exciting yeah. projects. So we just released uh, graphics, mm-hmm. and now we're working on. Um, so and it, it's native graphics. Yes, which is pretty cool in the browser. Yeah. So this this was this was this was a big one. We we started. Uh, we we have this tradition of starting a lot of skunk work projects, sometimes competing projects. Although we're a small company, we're six people. We're about to become seven, but we we'd have like two different programmers working on on the same thing um, because you know we, we're not sure which direction to take. We wanted to add general purpose graphics to to Replit. So that means that if you're um, if you want to use Pygame, if you want to use Java Swing, if you want to use um, Qt, you'd be able to use it on. You want to use TCLTK, you'll be able to use it on the system. Um, and one way we could have done it is we said actually there's no graphics, everything writes to the terminal, but we found that the, there's this old terminal uh, feature called Sixel. 
And Sixel allows you to draw images into the terminal. Hmm. And so we decided to do to build a general purpose graphics system based on Sixel. It's still you know standard compliant. It's something we care a lot about to be always standard compliant. Um, and we started prototyping that, and we got to the point where we ran Doom in Sixel, and <laughs> uh, we, we got really, really kind of mad sciency on this one. And um, we also, you know, we were able to make it work as like a IPython notebook as well, where you have, or like in Mathematica, where you can like program using images or using squares or using different things oh, in, the, wow. in the REPL. So it added a lot of features and capacities to our REPL. We haven't featured, we haven't released any of that yet because our end goal was to release a graphics system. So that was one one approach. Another approach we, but that wasn't the one you did, went with. No, we didn't go with that. No. <laughs> so it's, it's interesting. The, the, the last approach that that actually worked is sort of underwhelming, giving giving the meandering that that we did, uh, but it, it works. But uh, the second approach was. All right, we want to actually like be able to trap the fr- frame buffer as a program is writing to the frame bu- buffer and, and stream it down as video. And we started looking. If you want to do that, you'd want to be the kernel, basically. So we started looking at the different user space kernel implementations. And one of the things that really attracted our eyes was Google's GVisor. <laughs> as we started contributing to Google GVisor uh, and and working on it to get it to a point where we can do that sort of thing. That turned out to be a really long-term project. GVisor is really early, and there's a lot of system calls, a lot of things that they don't implement. One day, Rob was messing around, one of our engineers was messing around, and he started Chrome, and he started VNC server with Chrome in it. And we just had Chrome running on our infrastructure, and we were like watching YouTube together. And I'm like... All right, that's it. Like we found our graphics system. It's going to be VNC, and everyone's like, "No, that's that's too janky. Like we can't just like open a VNC uh, server for every for every client." I'm like, "No, no, no, it works. Let's just do it." And so you you sometimes as as a manager, you sometimes you have to just like you spend all this time on all these different things. You just like have to say, "All right, that's it. We're done. We're 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 all hands on deck." You know. Commit, and in two weeks we we built a general purpose sort of like VNC launcher and, and system that that works with uh, with any graphics, any language, any framework. Yeah, it's crazy. I've been seeing all the images on Twitter of like the recursiveness yeah. of how it goes because <laughs> you can like load, you can like pop open a web browser and load Replit, and then inside Replit, you can load Replit again. Yeah, we, we try to, anytime we release a feature, we try to take it to the you know absurdist mm-hmm. conclusion. Mm-hmm. And it, when I was writing the blog post, I was like, what would be cool if that, if as you're reading the blog post, you would hit run and you would get Chrome to the same blog post. <laughs> and, and we left a hint for people to say, hey, you can do it recursively. And so people ran the blo- the the REPL in the blog post. It opened Chrome. They went into the Chrome. They ran the REPL again. They ran the REPL again. I've seen people do it six times, and like it get really tiny. 
Six times. Six damn. times. And people on Hacker News were commenting with their images and how far they got. And then people on Twitter were also doing that. <laughs> and so, wow. Was the limit just the pixels? Yeah. Si- yeah, yeah. It wasn't compute because all the compute stuff was happening on the server. Yeah, all the compute on the server. Yeah. <laughs> but it was, it was a lot of fun. That's hilarious. Yeah. So uh, another uh, one of the things that I find most interesting about Replit is the community. Mm-hmm. It seems like you have a very active community of youngsters. Yep. Re- um, and the, these game jams are a new thing. There are these yep. competitions that you run? Yeah. And is, is the one that you're running now the first one where there's a reward? Or is that, is that if you have... Yeah, but you, we used to give them karma. Uh, sometimes <laughs> like, <laughs> like Amazon gift card or something like that. Um, actually, the story of how we found our community is not, not that obvious. Um, and I, my co-founder and I were mostly me. I was, I wasn't, I didn't really know how active of a teen developer community we have. And I just, you know, in retrospect now I understand why they love our tools. And, you know, if I, if I was growing up now, I would probably be all over it. Of course. Yeah. Um, and you know, based on my experience talking about like, how it was lonely, how it was like, I would lo- have loved something like that. Um, but at the time, it wasn't really obvious to me that like how how big our community could be. We started seeing sort of semblance of a community on our feedback form. So some kids will fe- leave us feedback and then some other kids will like reply and start making friends with them and start sharing repls with them, talking. You're desperate for friends. Yeah. And it, and it was like oh, this is strange. So we took we took the software, the external software that we used for that, and we generated another like feedback form. But we called it um, we called it um, what do we call it? We called it something like like forum or something like that. And oh no no no! And it, so it was like oh we wanted to populate the forum, so it was like let's do a challenge. So we did a challenge, like like share your REPL and the best REPL wins. And then the first hour we had like 100 shares and then the second hour another 100 and then they wouldn't stop and like there was like all this energy and floodgates that we just opened. Crazy. And we should have done it like years ago maybe but there was like this all this pent up energy. <laughs> and then and then one kid built a chat room. And he built a chat room, by the way, in the paradigm that I was talking about. He had a backend REPL that was doing the data storage and, and, and everything. And he had the clients being REPLs themselves. So he would boot up into this, into this prompt chat thing. Mm-hmm. And this is connecting to this backend that's connecting all the different mm-hmm. clients together. So if I want to join the chat, it, it's not a, a website. I have to open up a REPL. You open up a REPL, you run it, and you get the, and the prompt changes from from the REPL prompt to like a chat prompt. I have to hit run. Yeah, yeah. You have to hit run, and then that connects to like a backend, which is another REPL actually, <laughs> and so like it, a different language. Uh, I think right. it was both Python. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah, but it could have it could have easily been a different language. Um, oh, but the re. And he did it in two separate ones, so like people wouldn't hack it, I guess. Yes, because you uh, also like you need to connect the the users. So if you 
if you had every process on its own, how would you connect it? You need some kind of federated system. I see, I see. So it was like a centralized system. He had like some backend that they were connecting to. And the database, it would be persistent somehow. Yeah, it was. I don't think it was persistent at first. Later on, I think he made it persistent, but at first it was just like it was just like a broadcast system. I see, I see. Yeah. And this kid was nine, probably right. Twelve. <laughs> and I went in the chat and started t- chatting with them, and it was just amazing how much they started sharing their stuff, and the community started. He just the community built itself, and um, and then we started. A Discord server for them because we wanted something more interesting. And the Discord server started growing, and we have like these hyperactive, amazing, amazing group of kids um, on these servers building amazing software and collaborating and helping each other and helping other people in the community. Yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm just like, it's, 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 yeah, even as I'm saying the story, it's kind of un- unbelievable to my own ears, like how, how this whole thing progressed. But now we have, we have this amazing community that's sort of like growing, um, and uh, yeah, we, should, we love it. I, I spent I spent an insane amount of time in the in the community, just hanging out and and working with them. We started like a multiplayer session, and we all hop into it. The other day, I taught them how to do trampolines in JavaScript. Someone was running into um, a recursion problem where they were running out of stack space. I was like, "Oh, you should trampoline that." I was like, "What is a trampoline?" And then I I I started a live session and showed them what a trampoline is. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I I I can see how powerful a community, a, a so engaged community like, like that could be. Yeah. And um, while you were uh, cooking upstairs, uh, Haya was telling me about how um, she was she was. She's working on a design for like a help system. Like you guys have a help channel in the Discord, maybe, mm-hmm. but she wants to like bake it into the actual interface. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I can imagine it'd just be supercharged because you have all these kids like wanting to talk to each other, so that they're like desperate to help each other. Right. If anyone comes up with with it. Yeah. I mean, it's really underutilized right now. Yeah, we have a lot of energy in the community that could be better utilized. It, it reminds me of uh, watching um, my brother and his friends playing Minecraft. And then teaching each other how, how they do it. Yeah. Like it you know, it, there's no reason why we can't apply that same to, to programming, yeah. mentoring energy to programming. You know? Yeah. In fact, if you merge the two, that's the, you're golden. I think uh, Roblox yeah. had done a good, good, really good job. And we're starting to see a lot of kids from Replit kind of using Replit to script among, uh, Roblox and, oh, and things like that. So there's like um, a lot of interconnectedness. Um, and we, by the way, we, we, we spot trends really early on. Like before Fortnite started becoming mainstream, we started seeing all these websites and bots prop up that do something relating to Fortnite. And then two months later, Fortnite becomes this like worldwide sensation. Mm. Um, same thing with Discord. We started, we started seeing like Discord all over the place in 2015 or 2016. And then, of course, Discord kind of exploded in 2017, 2018. Mm. And, uh, uh, but it's interesting how we see the trends early on. And it's interesting, by the way, how teens are early adopters mm. in, in a lot of ways, not just, not just like the latest social app, but a lot of different applications. I guess this explains the Repl Adventure arm that you're about to start, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm actually, I, 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 actually, I, I think that's, that's a good idea. I seriously... <laughs> 
I, I, I actually want to do it. <laughs> yeah, well, you better, or, or you got to sell this data to venture capital firms. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, what's, what's, your, what's your current prediction? What, what, what are you hearing about now? Actually, we're kind of like all around low hype cycle on a lot of things. Low hype, uh, you, low you, hype. you aren't he- hearing things. Well, there are a few things. I think Roblox is, is really starting to, to uh, take up, but. I haven't really noticed something that's screaming at me, like you know. Sometimes you not realize it was a big deal until afterwards. Yeah, maybe, but I think I think with Fortnite, I really knew it. Like, what is going on? Yeah, it's like this is insane. Like, it's everywhere. Like every comment, every meme, everything. Yeah, it's Fortnite, and so it really is in your face. Like, I, I, um, I think PewDiePie is now. With that, with his battles T series, yeah, yeah. is really everywhere. Um, have you heard about those? Well, I, I heard about PewDiePie with the with the mos- with the shootings. Oh man, yeah, no, 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 it's not that. The by the way, like they, they, they guy was a troll. Uh, like I, I don't think PewDiePie just makes memes. Like it's oh, not, okay, it's, yeah. not, it's not. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the there's this big battle for the number one. Yeah. for YouTube and it's between this Indian channel called T-Series and PewDiePie and so a lot, a lot of kids are into this and they're trying to um, they're trying to figure out a way to help PewDiePie a lot of them are writing applications or bots and things like that to spread the message to say subscribe to PewDiePie so that's like a big trend right now but I don't see any like big overarching trends except for maybe that and Roblox is another one Especially the developer community about Roblox. Yeah, I, I remember. Yeah, when I first found out they existed, and uh, developers like kids make money from Roblox. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's yeah. cool. Yeah, that's yeah. Nice. I, I, li- I like. I really like the vision you were mentioning earlier of, of kids in Replit making money. Yeah, I, I definitely see you grabbing grabbing headlines in a couple of years. Like, you know, fourteen year old made a hundred k in yeah. a year. Did you see that nineteen year old kid that uh, just became a millionaire on Hacker One? Yeah, Hacker One is like this, like, yeah. Well, actually, you can. Uh, it's like this um, bounty. prize bounty bounty mm-hmm. bounty system for hacking. Mm-hmm. And there was a kid, I don't know from where exactly, but he's nineteen year old kid who just been awarded over a million dollars in in Hacker One prizes. Yeah, and um, this is the new rich. This is the new. This is the 21st century sort of millionaires that we're going to start seeing. Mm. Those like internet natives, programmers, creators, designers, entrepreneurs, social media influencers that are making all this money online, and uh, and it's really interesting. And I think it'll get it'll get bigger. It'll it'll be accessible to anyone who wants to to do it, and. Um, I, I just think it's, a, it's an exciting world to be in right now. Totally. From the perspective of, of you guys making money, I'd yeah. be curious if you could talk to. Uh, a big, does it come mostly from education at this point, or from? Yeah, right now we're selling to schools, and we have some developers paying us for privacy, kind of the old GitHub model. Of course, GitHub made it <laughs> made it made it public, um, and um, so this is a lot of where we're sort of like. Running lean and uh, and make sure we're not burning a lot of money so that we can keep going and keep exploring the next frontiers of programming. Um, in terms of 
where we see our long-term business, we see ourselves as definitely something like, um, like some kind of cloud provider or some kind of, there's also a potential for a business model that looks something like unity or some of those like game mm-hmm. developer platforms where it's a toolkit and you use it to build applications that could make money. And then if you make money, you know, we get a kickback somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, the marketplace you talked about is an interesting idea. So anyway, we can think about how our users can make money and by virtue of them making money, us making money off of them. I think that's the best, you know, most aligned mm-hmm. vision. That makes sense. Yeah, this it's kind of like the Apple like app store model. You you're really fully aligned with your with your creator. Um and the more you, you want to support them, you wanna give them as much um sort of as, as much help as possible for them to succeed. Uh the sort of Haruku model is actually quite user hostile, right? Developer hostile because if you're successful in a Haruku model, you're gonna pay the penalty, right? Yeah. For being successful. And you have to like leave. Um, you have to leave to cut costs and things like that. For us, we're trying to figure out a model where it scales with them. It scales with them, and we actually make money with you. So you can take your time figuring out how much, how you're going to make money, and then as you start making money, then we start making money with you. Hmm. So I know it sounds vague, um, but you know, that's the direction we're taking. We're, we're not rushing it because we want to build something new. Mm. We, we don't want to like repeat all the same things. Like Haruku has been tried, right? The, um, and all these are good businesses and they've done a great job. And, uh, if we're as successful as them, I, I'd be, I'd be happy. But also a big part of me is about trying new things. Like the graphics thing, like we, you know, we could have we could have done something with JavaScript or Web or WebGL or something like that. But really, we really wanted to like extend this to underserved communities. Meaning, the Python community doesn't have a place online where you can like yeah. make Pi game, right? Totally. So, a lot of what our ethos at Replit is less about competition, more about making something new in the world. And so, we want to try new things, and we have the luxury of having a lean team. Having the support of our investors to to kind of uh, spend some time on this and try to figure it out. That's great. Yeah, yeah. really exciting. Um, we are it's getting late. Um, I like to finish by um, having you like kind of list all the ways that you want to be contacted on the internet or what ways to like get involved or whatnot, collaborate if you're hiring things like that. Yeah, um, so I, I think you have that hiring message on top of the yeah, yeah it's funny. The, um, <laughs> the show, so. I, I, I normally deliver your hiring message, so yeah, yeah, yeah. So let me do it yourself this time. This time. So yeah, we're we're hiring uh, mostly like generalist hackers, mostly like the kind of people that would be listening to this show. Um, if, if even if you're even if you if you're not looking for a full-time job, if you want to like explore potentially um, a collaboration like we do with Glenn, we're also open to that. Um, we did a few of those and we're happy with them. Um, but we're also looking for full-time engineer. We're looking for infrastructure and we're looking for front-end engineers. We just look for good hackers. We don't really have 
any specific like we have a jobs page that you can look at but on the top of the job every job we say this is only an approximation um just reach out if if you if if you're a good good engineer and that's that's basically what i say and then um and if you're a bad engineer stay away (laughs) don't waste i'm just (laughs) i guess i guess what i mean by that is if you're driven you're um you love the the kind of stuff that we were talking about and you really want to work on them and dedicate a big portion of your career on this then 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 please do reach out and then uh in terms of where i could be found um a masad a m a s a d uh and you know all over the internet uh github replit uh twitter uh all these different places um and then uh, finally, like I'm, I'm really excited about what you're doing, the community that you're you're building. Um, this is something. The reason we support this show is because just, just the, like these ideas, there isn't a lot of places where we can talk about these ideas, or we can, we can discuss these ideas, or we can explore these these ideas. Um, and so, and I'm I'm actually surprised that there isn't a lot of these different places. So. Uh, I'm glad you're doing this, and I'm I'm super happy to be a supporter of the show, and of, of course a guest now. Yeah, I'm I'm so thrilled to finally have you on here and have you as a supporter. It's been great working together. Yeah, awesome, cool. All right, well, thanks for for taking the time. This yeah, great. no worries, my pleasure. And that's the end of the interview. And uh, as I'm sure you heard, Steve and Amjad thanking each other so i'm not gonna do all that again other than saying thanks steve for starting the future of coding podcast and community and uh doing all these great interviews and i think i think there might be one more interview that is in the in the archive as it were from the steve era of the show i'm not sure if that one's ever going to see the light of day or not otherwise this might be the last time uh, we hear from steve as host at least from the first round of the existence of this show Anyways, thanks for listening. Thanks for uh, subscribing if you are a subscriber and have stuck with me through the year of, of silence. And I will see you again in the future.